is our Everest. Greetings, culture vultures, and welcome to This Is Our Everest, the podcast that doesn't suck. It doesn't. Well, no. Wait, no, no, wait, 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 wait. It does. It, well, maybe. Maybe one day somebody will get all yeah. of the podcasts in one big box and blow them up in the middle of a baseball field. Right. <laughs> okay. Before we get into today's scheduled program of events Mm -hmm. our first podcast of the new series had something of a bump in in terms of listenership it did somehow or other somehow or other so (laughs) i thought it might be a good idea to do some housekeeping doing proper introductions and and the things that other podcasts do that i've never really viewed as being important oh so in that regard i'm roland bart no um <laughs> what <laughs> that was a brilliant joke about the authorship of something not being important yes no i did get it i spent a trimester learning roland bart i'm glad to hear it semiology in case you are new to this frankly damaging project we're we're very sorry for already having wasted like more than three minutes of your time yeah well you know get used to that yeah i am edward he is ian hello essentially what this is is little and large with each believing the other to be sid little yeah we've been watching analog television during the lockdown essentially to prove that maybe being locked down in the digital era isn't the worst thing that could possibly have happened and should lockdown ever end Mm. it will revert to what it was always going to be and what it was always meant to be which is a mano a mano struggle for ultimate dominance Mm. with bad television as the as the conduit yeah, yeah. So that's that's where we're at. New episodes on Thursday, unless you're a Patreon subscriber, in which case, new episodes on Wednesday. But we will get to that at the end, if you make it that far. Yeah. <laughs> There's a way to avoid doing that. Just, to, just press the pause button yeah. on your device. This week, in the programme we have been watching, God Help Us, is the 1979 World Disco Dancing Championships. And... Let's not beat about the bush here and respect the form. It is the World Disco Dance In N apostrophe championships. Sponsored by EMI. Yeah, basically entirely produced by EMI to such an extent that the head of the board of judges is the fucking competition organiser from EMI. Yeah. He looked... Gloriously incongruous at a world disco dancing apostrophe championship. He did a little bit. I noticed that he was described as a non-voting member of the panel, which... Yeah, so what, what's he doing there, then? Well, yeah, what, one, what, what's the point of him being on the judging panel yeah. at all? And, and two, presumably they decided that he wasn't sufficiently with it to uh, pass judgment on the disco moves that they were seeing. Yeah. But at the same time, I think he could have added a different perspective because, you know, he's from a different generation 
and uh, <laughs> maybe somebody could have provoked the first boner that he'd had in a decade. Well, and that 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 itself would have been the the. Key. Are you suggesting that this guy from EMI would have been standing around in this room, going, "Well, I I think you should go for the one that does the dance that's the most like the foxtrot." The dances do include lots of different elements of other dances, yeah. as they point out. I mean, I I get it. EMI have kind of staging this effectively as a promo thing, aren't they? You know, it's oh, all yeah. going to be their act the disco music that's going on. I mean, it would have been quite good if somebody had got up and danced to EMI by the Sex Pistols. Well, it would have to have been the disco version of it. Yeah, right, okay. So how long do you think it would take to pump out a disco version of EMI by the Sex Pistols? I reckon not very. Probably not. Well, generally speaking, I think a lot of the music had been made specifically for this programme. There there Mm. were disco versions of... Uh, there was a disco version of I'm a Man by the Spencer Davis group that did not escape my notice. Well, yeah, I mean, the, one of the things that did occur to me as I was watching it was that a lot of this disco music wasn't very good disco music. It wasn't particularly canon. Yeah, yeah. There was some good stuff in there. Don't get me wrong. I didn't mind. I didn't mind the cover of I'm a Man. No, well, it was it was all right. It was all, but it was all very much of a muchness. And the, the the interesting thing about the program was that after about fifty minutes of it, you realise that for those fifty minutes, there has been more or less a continual soundtrack of sort of one twenty beat per minute disco beats. Yes, and and it's quite overwhelming. Yeah, especially since I made a mental note of this. It's 11 minutes in before they've stopped introducing them. And this programme is only 50 minutes long. <laughs> in, well, that's true. But, in, I mean, in a way, it's impressive that they get everybody done. I mean, there's 32 contestants. Well, yeah, I mean, I get that. But you don't have to introduce every single one personally. I mean, they've got 50-5-0 minutes. And they've used up 11 of them. To give a little bit of historical perspective... The roots of this competition began with a segment in Bruce Forsyth's Big Night okay. from LWT okay. in 1978. And it grew into essentially what was a like a, a, a Eurovision of disco dancing. Okay, right. Um, so you could in fact argue that 50 minutes is, is no time. And we're actually seeing very little of the contestants. I mean... Well, um, yeah, I mean, the thing is, what's the point in spending all that time introducing them if it means that you can only show 10 seconds each of most of them afterwards? Would they not, as disco dancers, rather have, like, 40 or 50 seconds on screen each disco dancing, or would they rather have a 30-second introduction and then 10 seconds of disco dancing? You can put all the relevant details on the fucking screen. Name, where they come from, you know, occupation, age, whatever. Just stick it all in a graphic on the bottom of the screen for a few seconds. I'll tell anybody any relevant information. I just find it so strange that they should do it that way around. So what? Hold on a minute. What, you're going to take all this time to introduce all 32 people? And then you're barely going to show three quarters of them to be fair though, and it was rigged they were dancing <laughs> as they were being introduced that's not where the audience it's not where the audience's attention is going is it 
you know. Well, possibly not. But of the 32, yeah. only 15 would make it through to the second round, which immediately is odd. Yeah. It, the format is 32, 15, 7, and then 3. It just doesn't make any mathematical sense. If you've got 32, it's yeah. right there in front of you, you fucking idiots. It's right there. I'd like to see these people playing darts. Good God. So 17 of these contestants, you see dance for 10 seconds, maybe. And then they're never seen or heard of again. Hoiked off with a with a crook. <laughs> Some of them have come from quite a long way to be dancing on, on Thames TV for 10 seconds. Well, I mean, I, I put it to you that that's almost certainly where EMI's pockets came into play. Well, I suppose so. But I mean, if you're Lucy Mooka from Kenya. Yeah. I mean, you're not even getting your 15 minutes there. You're getting your 10 seconds. Yeah, but you are getting a week in London, probably in a decent hotel. Presumably, all of these people have been through their own sort of regional disco dance-off. So she will at least have had the honour of being... She's been the the Kenyan champion. 1978, I presume. Presumably so. It depends. I mean, what is the... You know, is it a winter sport or a summer sport? What I want to know is when the disco dancing season starts and when it ends. I was unable to find out the date of the broadcast of this, which actually Ah. is, is a bit disappointing because... Obviously, 1979 is a big year for disco music. Yeah. Because on the 12th of July, there was the Disco Sucks Rally, which, I mean, anyone who uh, had been following American politics in in the last few years... (laughs) Will recognise that, yeah. Will recognise the Disco Sucks thing. It was a bit like the March on the Capitol, but with more disco records. It was... Thinly veiled racism is is what it was. It was like, you know, uh, the, some guy arranged a, a mass burning of disco records. Steve Dahl, his name was. Yeah. Whereabouts did that take place? Chicago. Chicago, yeah. Definitely, definitely not racist. <laughs> no, definitely, definitely not racist. No, absolutely uh, nothing, uh, no troubling racist overtones about a large group of white people entirely white people angry white people angry drunk white people drunk white people yeah blowing things up yeah turning up somewhere and setting fire to and destroying a bunch of black people's art yeah absolutely no racial overtones to that. There's not, nothing suspicious there at all. No, nothing, nothing. But suspicious you do get the, the feeling that the disco movement still had legs outside of America at this time. Well, I mean, I understand that it proper shook Nile Rogers. At well, the time. I'm, I'm not bloody surprised. Understandably so. But yeah, I mean, disco. It's difficult, really, to say when its peak was. I would say that 1978 was probably the most disco year. Very possibly. I mean, Saturday Night Fever was 77. So, 78 was probably the, the peak. Yeah, it. you know, these things take a while to bleed into the broader culture. 79, they dominated the Grammys, which, in fact, precipitated the whole Disco Sucks movement right yeah yeah because there was now apparently an existential threat to white bread dismal rock music 
Yeah, I mean, my good right, okay. Following year, you get Tusk by Fleetwood Mac. As you well know, I love a bit of disco. Who doesn't? Well, racists. Yeah, racists. Particularly anything related to Nile Rodgers and Sheik. And I was, so I was thinking about this the other day. And I was thinking, well, go right, so who did these people love more than anybody else? And the first thing I thought was Kiss. The thing about (laughs) Kiss is that I had never heard Kiss anything by Kiss. No, neither have I. Until about two years ago. I watched an episode of Family Guy that had a little snippet of one of their songs. And I was like, oh, is that Kiss? That's Kiss. So they must be doing a Kiss song. So that kind of means that I've heard Kiss now. I potted off to Spotify. Oh, God. And I was like, okay, I'm just going to go in and I'll just listen to the five most listened to Kiss songs. Mm. And they're fucking garbage. They are absolutely fucking terrible. What's that? I I just want to rock and roll all night. Oh, is that one of those? That's that's Kiss. That's Turns kiss out song. I have heard Kiss. Yeah, and it's and if you think about that, none of it kind of scans or holds together. It's just... Bullshit platitudes with nothing behind them. I mean, me and you disagree on quite a few things musically. And one of the things that we disagree on is that I think that I'm more rock-oriented than you. I think, yeah, I mean, you're definitely uh, more forgiving towards the music of the saltine-ass, cracker-ass, honky-cracker. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I I just think I'm a better-rounded human being, but, you know. (laughs) Um, it only really occurred to me that they are exactly what, if I'd thought about it, I would have thought they sounded like. And if I'd thought about it, I'd have thought they sounded like a slightly jazzy Grand Funk Railroad. Wow. And that is exactly what they do sound what like. What a write-up that is. Slightly jazzy Grand Funk Railroad. Does that, how can anybody even prefer this to the Freak? How is that possible? We've got 32 of the world's finest amateur disco dancers at Leicester Square, the Empire Ballroom, mm. with hosts Peter Gordino and David Hamilton. David Diddlington. And they will be dancing their asses off on quite a fetching dance floor that has all of the flags of the competing countries, which I quite liked. Yeah. But there's 32. As I say, it then goes down to 15 and 7. And they are judged throughout by the judging panel, who were the Motown artist (laughs) Cyrita. Yes. Who? Who? (laughs) I've just remembered who's in this list. The ballet dancer and choreographer Lynn Seymour. That's that's sensible. Dancer. Uh, The choreographer David Kaguri. Again, sensible choice. Mr. Tubular Bells himself, Michael. (laughs) (laughs) And and this is very exciting because it, it allows us the chance... To sound the multiple appearance yeah. klaxon for the first time in this series, which I will just do.
Lulu. Yeah. Lulu, previously seen in Christmas Night with the Stars, 1972. Yeah. Now purportedly expert enough on disco dancing. We meet again. And they're judging all of the contestants on moves, personality, how well that fits the, 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 the song, which I think is a little bit cruel, considering that there just seems to be a, a perpetual suite of disco music playing. They're not getting to choose their own song, essentially. They, they get, they're dancing to whatever is playing when they are coming out. That's what I thought. You can really see this nascent new sport is in its evolutionary state. Because they're making such fundamental mistakes. You know, you've got 32 people and you're, what, 15, then 7, then 3, then 9 again. <laughs> yeah, it was crazy. Then, then none. <laughs> then four. But the thing is that you've got all this stuff going on. Yeah. And what it needs is the structure of something like ice dancing. Where there is a formula. Yeah. And actually organise it. And let them be artistic with disco dancing. I'd watch that. Why not? Well, you'd, you'd also... you Obviously, you'd need longer than an hour with Diddy yeah, Dave Yeah, but the thing Hamilton. is that if it was somebody doing, like, interpretive disco dancing of a song and it's competitive and there's 20,000 people in a stadium because for some reason it's the Winter Olympics and you've got 20 million people watching on TV... Well, it's no more ridiculous, really, than doing it on ice skates. And I reckon that you could probably get into it as a sport. The problem with this is that the format is all messed up and they've got to rattle through it too quickly. They've managed their time incredibly badly and the whole thing just feels as if it's been shunted on in a kind of, what will this do? (laughs) Well, yeah, they just shove shove them on and, I mean... Where what you're dancing to is just depends on where the sort of jive bunny yeah. disco mega mix is at at the time yeah. of the, the alpha. It's like they'd send them out in alphabetical order of country, yeah. So you're asking them to interpret something and they don't even know what it is. It's, it's highly possible that they could even get out there and not even have heard the song before. Christian Ader was the first person out, he's from Austria and he did what I can only describe as some mad robotics. I wasn't surprised to not see him again. Yeah. Dinah Jonsson of Iceland is a petrol pump attendant and was dressed exactly like you'd expect an Icelandic disco dancing champion <laughs> to be dressed. Fair. Uh, but I think my favourite of the people eliminated in the first round was Avi Menach of Israel, who was a soldier. Yeah. He he actually had some pretty fresh moves. Well, you, you need to be careful about what you say well, no, next. I, just, I mean, I, now, presumably... <laughs> from all sides. Presumably... From all sides. It, it could have been that he was just doing his national service. He was um, 18 years old at the time. Jesus, I'm sure I had it written into my contract. No mention of Israel in this No podcast. mention of the Israeli army. But Avi, Avi Menach was... He had some fresh moves and he was wearing some pretty hefty, possibly military issue boots. I just wonder what his comrades in arms made of uh, some of his life choices at that point. Why did he choose to hamper himself in that way? No wonder he went out in the first round. The judges probably thought, 
fucking idiot. Why isn't he at least wearing a pair of trainers? Well, it's difficult to know what the best footwear is. Ballet shoes would be my guess. I mean, that's what ballet dancers wear. Well, I suppose so. But, I mean, uh, what does John Travolta wear? Because that's uh, your ultimate, isn't it? Well, yeah, but, I mean, that's, you know, that that's, but that's John Travolta, though. Also falling at the first hurdle is Savash Omer. Representing Northern Cyprus, he's a cook and he gives it plenty, but he's just he doesn't have he doesn't have the moves of Southern Cyprus. No, nah. I found it very interesting that Northern and Southern Cyprus were treated as a separate entity, but Germany was just Germany. Well, I mean, I don't because know. East East Germany, right? That's a thing that happened. I was nine years old in 1989. You would have been 17 years old when the Berlin Wall came down. And I what was, a, What a yeah. strange world it must have been. If I had been born in Dresden or Leipzig, yeah. then, you know, you're nine years old and all of a sudden someone pats you on the arse and goes, all right, everything you've known so far was just, you know, a bit of fun. You're not actually You're not actually living in a Stalinist mind camp. Get on with your life now. Yeah. Yeah, here, here's some stuff. Try explaining Brexit to those people. They they gave you a bit of paper with, do you want to make your country worse, Y slash N? And you chose yes. <laughs> but, I mean, at the end of the day, at the end of the day, when all is said and done, who won the bloody war in you? Oh, God. <laughs> oh, to be British. Well, it could have been Foreigners worse. must be as sick as pigs. Oh, Jesus. Stand, everyone stand up. Stand up now. Get your willies out. Get the Elgar on. Come on. Flop your willy out. Cry God for Harry, England and St George. I have no idea what this you're talking about. This royal throne of kings. This sceptered isle. This earth of majesty. This... Could, could we just rewind about 30 seconds this on this? This seat of Mars. This other Eden. Demi paradise, this fortress built against nature for herself. No, anyway, yeah. Um, what I'm well, what I, <laughs> all this you took all this from the 1979 World Disco yeah, Dancing Apostrophe Championship. Not choosing West and East Germany to <laughs> no, but actually, it it. It does have some bearing because I felt that there was quite a nationalistic bent to the whole competition. Even at the beginning, the the opening titles of the programme, which featured all of the competitors dancing to a disco version of Singing in the Rain in a very wet London down by the River Thames. Mm -hmm. As they announced all of the countries, Canada, Indonesia, South Africa, etc, etc., when they got to the United Kingdom, despite the fact that this, this was just in, in VT, massive cheer yeah. from the crowd. A baying mob. I mean, we'll we'll get to the, the UK's contestant. I couldn't believe it when I saw who it was. And I was like, that can't be. It can't be. And I had to Google I it. I couldn't believe it when I saw her trousers. <laughs> and ended up on a, on a Wikipedia page. And I was like... Only is what downtown Julie Brown? It's fucking. It's only fucking downtown Julie Brown. Holy shit! I mean, I spent a lot of time between about maybe nineteen eighty nine and nineteen ninety two watching MTV. Yeah, we didn't have it at home. We didn't have Sky at home, but 
I lived in quite a wealthy town and a lot of my friends' parents did. So we would spend like, you know, we'd spend whole days watching MTV. And so downtown Julie Brown kind of became a little bit of a part of my life, really. And and seeing her as the 1979, at the 1979 World Disco Dancing Apostrophe Championships was just, for me, a beautiful and glorious moment. I, I could well, not have been happy. This was, this was her breakthrough, obviously. Yeah. I mean, yeah, at the yeah. time, she was born in... August 63. So at the time, she was no older than 16. Yeah, yeah. It was after this that she went on to present Cracker Jack, Dance on Top of the Pops, yep. as part of the act Zoo. Yeah, well, I, you know, that, 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 I, I hold Zoo in contempt. So, you know, I, I've, I've, if you watch a lot of Top of the Pops from the Zoo era, the kind of early 1980s, which you do, which I do. As you well know, uh, you you very quickly find them to be absolutely fucking insufferable. Some of them are less sufferable than others, and uh, I would put her probably at the uh, the more sufferable end. But downtown Julie Brown then, as you say, moved on to be a VJ on MTV. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But... Uh, developed the catchphrase "Wubba Wubba Wubba." Yeah. <laughs> Which she did by accidentally reading the T-shirt of the person who was operating the auto cue, yeah. rather than the <laughs> auto cue. Look, I'm not saying that she was any great intellectual authority. She, <laughs> she, could, she could disco dance, though. But, but I, like I say, it's like a flashback to being, you know, I, I, momentarily. As soon as I was aware that I was in her presence, I was like. 17 again for five minutes it was a beautiful moment let's look at the final three as they were voted by the judges in third place amanda gibson from ireland who looked like a jumble sale had come to life yeah in in second place was everton wilton of canada yeah who who looked like michael jackson had come to life yeah and then downtown Julie Brown yeah. of Bridge End was the winner. Are there any contestants who you feel were badly mistreated by the judges and should have done better? The problem is that there was no criteria. You know, it's... Well, they were, well, they were, but they were entirely sketchy. Yeah, uh, you know. It's it, it's it's the weediest of frameworks, and so I was watching it, basically just thinking, well, how am I supposed to feel about this? Do you know? I think I think you're just. I mean, I I took it as just who's got the funkiest, freshest music. Yeah, I, I, disco music in 1979 was the funkiest, freshest music on the block. So who's Giving it loads. Yeah, but I mean, is that enough? Is that enough on its own? And if it is, you know, you can just go out there and just throw yourself around and win. I think if it wants to be taken seriously as a sport, then I I, I just don't think that's the direction it should be moving in, Brian. I I want to make some honorary mentions. I thought Barbados had a... Barbados... What a start, eh? He was the first one out. Yeah, straight well, yeah, out was... does the splits. 
There you go. Lay, he's laying down a marker. His name was Wavell Nichols. 21 years old. He was a waiter. My favourite thing about him, he had a very square body. He wore hooped socks. And he had a very sort of muscular style, which was entirely predicated, I feel, on standing on the spot. I think that the disco where he'd learnt all of his moves was obviously a very popular very one. Very crowded, yeah. He did all of his best work absolutely anchored to the spot. So I think he deserves a mention. Bermuda deserves a mention. Winslow Hollis, which, one, great name. And two, he had a top hat and tails. And he was rolling that top hat around with great alacrity. I was very impressed. Yeah. There's one thing we haven't touched on yet. It's the racist interview. <laughs> oh, yeah, well, we're, yeah. We're... <laughs> because, because, because I, can, I, I just wanted to, um, to, 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 to bear in mind, you, you needed to drop this in. You know, last year I was sitting up there as one of the judges and I was bowled over by a disco dancer from Tokyo called Tadaki Dan. Will you please welcome the world current disco dancing champion, Tadaki Dan. Tadaki, let me ask you a few questions. Did, did you have a very good year when you, you know, during this period? Oh, yes, he said he had a marvelous, marvelous year. Uh, Tadaki, let me ask you another question. Um, how are you enjoying London? Uh, みんなと友達になれたっていうのがね、一人一人なんていうのかな、接し合って、僕自身あまり大事な言葉がわかんないからね、それがすごく嬉しかった。あ、そう。Yes. <笑> I mean, I I started watching that interview thinking, ah, oh, this is quite an involved question. He's English. It's a very involved this, question. This, this guy's English must be really good because I know from from having been there, I know that the Japanese do not speak much English. You know, it's it's not a city that you can go to and just speak to somebody in English and hope that they'll be you know have a reasonable no, chance. Well, I think generally speaking, you can't you can't assume walking up to a Japanese person that they're going to necessarily speak English. We all know that going in. Peter Gordino is Burmese and I I was looking into his lineage to find out whether or not there was any Japanese aspect to it that would suggest that he could speak Japanese and therefore would be able to you know act as a, a, a interpreter for this no there isn't mm. and in fact what you actually get is he answers in Japanese and he just goes yeah <laughs> now that's that's a very interesting way of communicating with with a Japanese person. If you you're going to speak to somebody, ask them an involved question in English. Yeah. Get an answer in their language, and then just just assume that you got the answer that you wanted. Did the Japanese guy understand the question, or was he just taking a very long time about saying, "I'm really sorry, but I've got no idea what you're talking about. I only speak Japanese. I don't speak any English at all." I think he must have been primed at some point because obviously they were leaning towards the the feature that he'd made, dancing around Madame Two Swords. 
then uh, the, well, we'll count, yeah, stick a pin in that. But there was there was no, but there was no need for the second translation that was given by Peter Gordino to feature the words "are so." Yeah, and nothing else. Something no Japanese person has ever said. I mean, it was just such a strange. Interaction because I think they maybe they just assumed they could get away with it without it looking ridiculous. And he'll answer the question, he'll ask the questions in English, he's been given them already, he'll answer them in Japanese, and he can go, Yep, well, that's fine, yep, okay. And and maybe we can just do a conversation like that, or you know, just as long as it's just a couple of questions and there isn't too much of them to have to remember. But the problem is that after one question and reply, they're both very aware of how stupid it all sounds the first one you think oh that's what they're they're gonna do but there's a sort of a ripple of laughter derisory laughter from the audience like what do you think you're gonna do that yeah you think you're gonna get away with that shit yeah and the whole thing absolutely falls yeah, to pieces. So he does a racism instead. So he does a racism instead. He's, he reached for the bottom of the barrel and he pulled a racism out. It's a fascinating, you know, interpretation of how to uh, how to how to treat yeah. this. Now Tanaki Dan celebrates his return to London with, as we say, a, a little dance around Madame Tussauds. Yeah. That was a fucking terrifying spectacle. I've ever well, seen one. I was just... I, I glanced away for a few seconds. That was a mistake. And I looked back and I was like, hang on a minute. Who is that footballer? And why is he standing there? Because it, was, it was Kevin Keegan. It was Kevin Keegan, but it took a few seconds for it to register. I was like, it is Hamburg kit. <laughs> What? I didn't What's get... he doing I... standing? Oh no, hang on a minute, that's a waxwork. It is one of the worst waxworks I think I've ever seen. <laughs> it was it was it was magnificent, I thought. The wax the waxwork of Lester Piggott was, like, was much better. <laughs> I almost went at Lester Piggott completely. Not just because it was really bad and and didn't really look like it. But just because of the name Lester Piggott, I was like, if if this is being viewed around the world... No Japanese person knows who Lester Piggott is. No this person is a... of any nationality that isn't British knows who Lester Piggott is. Oh, right. most, Irish. Mo- Irish. Most British people now don't know who Lester Piggott is. I mean, there is a very definite generation gap. Well, the Elvis one was all right. You know, the, the Elvis, Elvis one, one was pretty like Elvis, good. But, I mean, you got to be getting Elvis right because no one is good everybody's going to be walking up to Elvis expecting him to look like Elvis with Lester Piggott Kevin Keegan I got because he was wearing a handbook yeah, kit and it took a minute as Lester Piggott I got because he was probably the only jockey of sufficient gravitas and recognition at that time to be in Madame Tussauds uh, I think Bruce Forsyth was lurking around somewhere there was Liza Minnelli and Telly Savalas. It was one of the greatest sequences, I think, in the programme. In the whole programme, it was ab- utterly it was an utterly breathless 50 minutes, a pounding, continual beat that never let up. It was... And then all of a sudden, there's a Japanese man in a satin one-piece 
I don't know what you'd call it. It wasn't quite a onesie. Yeah. But it was it was very flash. Dancing his way around Madame Tussauds. Mm. I don't even think that this was a real competition. I think that this whole thing is actually they've what they've managed to do is somehow televise Julie Brown's dreams. Because the whole thing just seems to have been set up just to crown her the champion. It's it's weird. She's running around like an eight-year-old at her own birthday party, dancing up a storm. Admittedly, I can't deny that she wasn't one of the best dancers. Mm. But at the same time, the whole thing has a sort of a dreamlike quality, which makes me think that they've just televised her inner monologue somehow. It couldn't have gone any better for her. The crowd were going wild at the merest mention of her name. Yeah. And every single time she came through, and because, of course, the United Kingdom is one of the last countries alphabetically, it always led up to that big reveal. Oh, she's still in. And, of course, she's still in. And, of course, she's going to win. And I think the fact that Ireland also managed to get into the top three as a summit of a sop, you just start to wonder, what's going on here? I mean, of course, in Canada being second place it's a commonwealth benefit the whole thing was an absolute stitch up and i'm <laughs> appalled and disgusted that this filth <laughs> everyone television then again actually i quite enjoyed it they went on until 1984 the final two years were covered by channel four rather than itv but i, I was mean... surprised to see that there was more than one well there you go hats off to Downtown Julie Wubba 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 Brown. <laughs> Magnificent. Yeah. Did you enjoy the programme? I, I quite enjoyed it. I mean, it, as a contest, it was an absolute joke. But as a spectacle, I quite enjoyed it. Yeah. <laughs> Ultimately. I can see how I would enjoy a World Disco Dancing Championship. Have some rules that everybody understands, you know. Yeah. Allow a bit for artistic interpretation. Let the people choose the songs. You know, let them Toolville and Dean it. Um, Make it into an actual competition. And then I think it's valid. This, however, was just non-stop. 60 minutes. Racist interview. And it's just too much. You know, you've got to let up. And I get it, you know. They can't stop the music, but it's you. You really, as a viewer, need a let up from it, and the kind of the let ups that they did give, the music kept going. Yeah, uh, I, 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 I mean, I don't know this for sure, but it, I mean, as far as I can remember, the music never stopped at any point. It was just a continual suite of disco rhythm. Yeah, yeah. Which is it is quite overwhelming, and I had a heart attack about a third of the way. Yeah, uh, it's just too much, you know. It's is there, yeah, is there such a thing as too much disco? Yes. Well, no, there. You know, if you're out dancing, then no. You know, if you're in a club, then yeah. You know, well, well I don't know, four hours. Um, but if you're watching on TV. Unless it's being performed by somebody who's really, really interesting and arresting, and a lot of them weren't particularly. 
what yeah. you're actually getting is just this just this music coming at you and not even very well disco having been dealt with we are into the creamy center our new and exciting feature that you invented and have possibly forgotten about already no 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 of course i haven't um the creamy center our our weeks in youtube surfing other than our set text i did find a new youtube channel that i hadn't before seen okay and i watched about three or four minutes of the first episode of a sitcom series from 1974, I think it was. Oh, Jesus. Called Silla's Comedy Six, oh. which was an attempt to do for Silla Black what the uh, that what they did for Ronnie Barker a few years earlier. Oh, well, so six different pilots. Yeah, six different episodes, yeah. And I tell you what, they were the difference, all... though, is surely that Ronnie Barker was an extremely adept comic actor, and Cilla Black was a set of teeth. They genuinely thought these people were, you know, could do anything. You know, we had this conversation about Forsyth, didn't we? Yeah. Weird. Um, and I watched. What else have I watched? With the Cilla thing, I went down a bit of a bad comedy wormhole because there was a bunch of stuff all on the same channel. I watched an episode of Bloomers, the Richard Beckinsale vehicle, which uh, was the series that he was making when he died. Of shame. Yeah. No, 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 no. You know, it was all right. It was a bog standard late 1970s BBC One sitcom. But he died uh, the day before, the night before the rehearsal for the final episode of the first series. So only the first five episodes of the series were made. It's not your cup of tea, you see, a lot of this. Porridge is, obviously. But a lot of the stuff that he did was gentler. He did The Lovers, didn't he? Which which was, I think, before then, which was when he was still quite young. And that's very kind of gentle and not particularly troubling. So to be in something a little bit edgier, and Porridge was, if nothing else, a little bit edgier than The Lovers... Yeah, it's very, very sad. Very, very sad indeed. I, I didn't feel ghoulish watching it because it literally, I didn't realise at first what it was. And okay. I, at first I was like, oh, it's just a BBC sitcom I've never seen before. I've got 25 minutes. And I was like, oh, that's Richard Beckinsale, isn't it? And I was like, oh, hang on a minute. I think this is the... Yeah. So, um, like I say, I might go back to it, finish it off. I don't know. I don't know what would be the bigger honour. You know, watching a... To watch an, an illegally uploaded season of a 1979 <laughs> sitcom that he never completed, or to not uh, do so, I'm not sure about that. Yeah, it's, a, yeah, it's an interesting. That's one for the moral maze. Yeah, it's an ethical dilemma. My uh, my week in crap TV. Uh, I've watched the first two episodes of The Last Train. Ah, I have seen all of that. In fact, I believe that uh, somewhere amongst my pile, a huge pile of DVDs that I haven't got around to throwing away yet, that I have a copy of that. I've definitely seen it before. The ITV apocalyptic drama about a group of people who are cryogenically frozen... After a train crash. It's got what's her face in it, who I think is really, really, really hot. 
What's her name? She's in Spooks. Nicola Walker. Quite possibly. She is brilliant and should be made a saint by the Catholic Church. Big fan of, of, of her work. She is one of the leading TV actors in the world. Yeah. In my book, which is a weighty tome. Imagine surviving an asteroid strike because you're cryogenically frozen in a railway tunnel only to come out and be eaten by a pack of wild dogs after 50 years. Yeah, well, that's... And that is the fate that befell somebody in my front room not a few hours ago. Yeah, well, there you go. There's a, there's a, it there's was a, me. Yeah, there's a message. There's a message there. There's a message there. Kill yeah. all dogs. But anyway... Anyway... Next week, it's your choice. It's your choice. Well, speak on the subject of killing all dogs. I've chosen... Because this is the first time I've heard it, isn't it? I believe yeah, so. This isn't I've not something told you've you. already told me. Okay, right. All creatures great and small. Oh, you fucking idiot. <laughs> so... You fucking idiot. I'm hoping... We are going to hate that. I am hoping that we are going to get... Why? Some proper up-to-the-fucking-armpit cow-ass... Action. You know what's going to happen here? What's going to happen here is that I'm going to put this on late at night five fucking times and fall asleep ten minutes into it. But I will be able to recite the first ten minutes of this. One idea I did have, and it's nearly made my creamy centre for this week, but I pulled back, was I was <laughs> tempted to watch What's Good for the Goose because I've never seen it all the way through. Yeah, well... Uh, after we found it last week. And I, I thought that maybe we could watch What's Good for the Goose and do it for our Patreon subscribers. Maybe we as should. A, as a special. Do Yeah. Because they, they have suffered twice. Because not only have they suffered having to listen to this, but they've then found out that they're slightly poorer than they thought they <laughs> As a result. We're as a so result, sorry. But if you want to be a Patreon subscriber... Even though it's Patreon only, I'm still going to have to watch this, aren't I? What's good for the goose? Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, I have no idea if it's good, bad, or I mean, maybe... How much of it... ends up with his arm up a goose's ass. How how much of it have you seen? The opening titles. Just the opening titles. Well, that's the only bit we ever watched. (laughs) Yeah, because, I mean, I have seen the whole film. Um, obviously well I've never I never went past that oh right okay because um (laughs) oh god well if you if you want to be party to this great (laughs) viewing seven hour long diatribe seven hour long diatribe www.patreon.com slash 200% pod and you can get on board there are three different tiers but i will make it available to all tiers so whatever you whatever Whatever. level of uh, support you choose to give you're not going to be able to get away from it (laughs) Uh, and you can get in touch with us on twitter at everest podcast all one word and that's the end of the announcements so there you go right That'll do us for this week. We'll be back same time, uh, same time next week with all creatures great and small. <laughs> you fucking idiot! Oh god, I hate you. Um, thanks very much for listening, and goodbye.
Hey, Dantan, Julie Brown with you. Well, I know a lot of the, the kids on the show get a lot of mail, and sometimes I get the, the odd difficult question that comes in. Now, Dirk Lindloff, okay, from West Germany, because the show goes over there as well, wrote in and asked what wubba 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 means, and it just basically means, what does wubba 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 mean, guys? It just means party and have a good time. And he also asked why I always say Club MTV comes to you from the USA and the UK, and I never say West Germany. So for today, for everyone in West Germany and the rest of the place where Club MTV goes...